we had an elders meeting, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about me doing this Westminster class, which maybe some of you remember we were doing before uh, COVID, and we got, I don't know, four or five chapters into it, and then everything kind of fell apart. And um, so it came up, and the elders were uh, adamant about all of you grown-ups showing up for the class. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you know how well you know me, but, like, I tend to be pretty deferential. And, I, you know, I mean, I'm kind of a soft sell in, in some things. Other things I'm ready to fight, but a lot of things I'm not. And so, I, you know, they're all looking at me like going, you got to kind of, you know, put, the, put your foot on the gas pedal a little bit here, Pastor Paul. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't tend to pastor the way I coach. I don't know if those of you who ever played for me, know I, or played with me, know that I can be very demanding out in the, the field or on the court. And they're like, well, you need to pastor more like you coach. And they'd sit it nicely, you know. And having said that and giving that big explanation, I strongly encourage you to come to the Westminster class, you know, have your donut and a cup of coffee. And are we ringing a bell today? Did I hear that right? Yeah, we're going to ring a bell when the time comes and come on in. And it is of great value to understand that confession. So I was just going to, that's it. And then after 20 minutes, we'll go into our, our normal time of question and answer. So we're just going to do 20 minutes of that. All right. Now, having said that, this morning, we're going to go through another entire chapter of the Revelation. And it's, so it's, and it's not like a short chapter like last time. It's kind of long. And I, I, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be a challenging. It's going to be challenging for all of us to stay engaged. And so I'm going to challenge you to stay mentally, intellectually, and spiritually engaged. But I have to say this also, but that in my study of this chapter, I've also found it very ministerial and strengthening and stirring to my own heart. And I do pray that will be true for you as well. So we are in Revelation chapter 16. I've entitled the sermon keep your garments. You'll see that phrase in the passage. Revelation 16, verses 1 through 21. Hear now the word of God. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went out and poured his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was, And who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another saying from the altar, saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give glory 
to God. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I, come, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the angel poured out his bowl into the air, the seventh angel, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since there were men on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone weighed about a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we were reading such intense words here. We do pray that we would recognize why, by your spirit, you would give us these words to meditate upon. We do pray that we would grasp them, that we would know what these things meant to those who received this letter in the beginning and what it should mean to us. We do pray, Father, that you would grant us wisdom from above, that we might know and embrace, and in fact, uh, glory in such heavenly things. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We have, um, in our culture, all cultures have little idioms, idiomatic names that conjure up thoughts in our, in our minds. Maybe you've heard the phrase, to cross the Rubicon. You know, it's, a, it's actually referring back to something Caesar did. It's like this point of no return. If you cross the Rubicon, there's no, there's no turning back. Waterloo, right? The, makes you think of this great defeat. Pearl Harbor makes you think of an attack. Benedict Arnold, what do you think of? Yeah, traitor, right? I, I did read an article that said he wasn't that bad, but nonetheless, that's the rap he gets. But we know these things because we know a little bit about history, right? We know what happened at the Rubicon. We know what happened at Waterloo. We know what happened at Pearl Harbor. We know who Benedict Arnold is. And so we need to understand a little bit of the history for us to make sense of what those words, what those people, what those phrases, our locations actually mean. Now, we have stated, and I've stated numerous times, that in the Revelation, you have well over 400 allusions to the Old Testament, We're not going to understand the Revelation if we don't understand the Old Testament. So we read the Revelation, so to speak, 
with the Old Testament in our hands as opposed to what is popular today, which is reading the Revelation with a newspaper in our hands. I think that's critical in terms of understanding what this book is all about. What we see in this 16th chapter of Revelation will be numerous references to what happened during the Exodus. Now, we're not going to go into detail on that, but a lot of references to what happened when Moses delivered the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt. But we're also going to see words like Babylon, Armageddon, Euphrates. And I think we need to understand what those words meant in the Old Testament in order for us to understand what they mean in this chapter. Now, I'm going to approach this chapter as more of a survey rather than a detailed analysis of every uh, phrase. So we're going to kind of really gloss over it and get the big picture. And the goal that I have is for all of us in this room to have a pretty good idea of the way those seven churches from chapters 2 and 3 understood having received this, what it meant to them, how they were to respond to this, the original audience that John, really the Holy Spirit, really Jesus was writing to, that we might understand what their response was, that we might find ourselves having a similar response when we confronted with a similar situation. We need to know what it meant to them in order for it to mean anything to us. Now, this chapter speaks of seven bowls of wrath. Boy, I don't know if you've read, how much you've read on the Revelation. You know, people love to do charts, right? And there's a lot of sevens in the Revelation. And I have to say, when I look at charts, and maybe it's just the way my mind works, it doesn't help. It's like when I look at the board of a mathematician, and he's got all these different sines and cosines, and, and I'm looking at this big chalkboard, and I'm like, I, I have no idea what's up there. That's what the charts look like to me. But see me if I can simplify what's going on here with the sevens. Remember, we had the seven seals, and those seven seals were kind of previews of what were going to happen with the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets were like judgments that fell upon Jerusalem. And we went through those seven different types of judgments. Now we have seven bowls, okay? Now even that might sound confusing because we put cereal in a bowl, right? But that's not what's going on here. They're bowls of wrath. Now what's the difference between the trumpets and the bowls? The thing you see when you start to examine this, and I don't think it's just a recapitulation of the seven trumpets, I think that it's something that is more vast. It's bigger. Remember, now we're in, the, we're in that prophecy from the little book that is going to be a prophecy to every nation, every language, every tongue. So we have a bigger prophecy taking place here. I'll give you just one example. In the second trumpet, going all the way back to chapter 8, a third of the sea becomes blood. Remember that? There were a lot of thirds going on in those early chapters. But here, the entire sea becomes blood. So it's not a third, it's the entire now, why would that be? And I, I would argue that it's very likely because those trumpets were applied to Jerusalem. But these bowls are applied to the entire Roman Empire. Which, by the way, if you read your Bibles, you would recognize that 
the readers of the Bible would view the Roman Empire as the entire world. We have to understand that language in order for this to make sense. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.8 says, your faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. Well, really? Was it the whole world? You know, and I always say, you know, did the Mayans know about the prayers of the church? No, the whole world in their minds would have been the entire Roman Empire. Now, let's go through the bulls, but we're going to go through them very quickly. But the first bull I want to spend a little bit of time on because that bull will tell us a little bit about the rest of the bulls. In that first bull, we have a foul and loathsome sores coming upon men. Perhaps you recall in the Exodus, that is in chapter 9 of Exodus, 9 through 11, we see the plague of the boils. So we see a reference back, appealing back to to Exodus. But this wrath is not falling upon the Egyptians because of the refusal to set the Israelites free. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth noting that the same type of wrath that used to fall upon the enemies of God in Revelation are falling initially, especially in the, in the trumpets, falling upon the covenant people of God who have turned their back upon Christ. So that, now they have moved from being the people of God's covenant to the enemy of the people of God's covenant. And so we have here a different target in terms of who are these sores falling upon? And who are they falling upon? It fell upon those who had the mark of the beast who worshipped his image. Now, we talked about that in detail when we were in chapter 13, so I'm not going to go into detail there. But that tells us a little bit about, because these bowls of wrath are falling. Uh, it's not like one ends and then the other one begins. The, 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 the plague of the sores remains throughout the seven bowls, right? So these are the same people who are being, you know, falling. The, the wrath of God is falling upon them. Well... This wrath falls upon those who have made a full commitment, body, mind, and soul, to the beastly government of their day. Um, We have no king but Caesar. Those are people who took the mark of the beast. Now, I say that, and I realize that sounds dramatic, right? This, these, these bowls are falling upon those who have worshipped the image of the beast. In other words, they view the Roman Empire, they view the Caesars as their ultimate authority. They look to them, they trust in them. That is who they're all about. And we struggle with that because for the most part, as South, as we feel politics have gone in America, none of, none of, probably nobody in this room has felt the full force of a political system which refuses to share the throne, let alone bow before the throne of Christ. None of us in this room have probably experienced that. Now, I'm here to tell you that the unredeemed kings of the earth do not have an amicable relationship with the king of kings. 
We, uh, we prayed for Pastor Pan today. Maybe some of you remember him preaching here a couple of years ago. He's part of the underground church in China. You know, you can, you can be part of the three-self church in China, and, and you're fine. They, they have churches all over the place. But if you decide, no, no, we're not going to allow the government to tell us what we can or cannot preach, we're not going to assuage our message to the political leaders, you're going to find yourself in the underground church. And that's what Pastor Pan was part of, the underground church. And things were getting hot there. And they had to leave. So they ended up in Korea. And they were trying to get asylum there, but they would not, you know, there was like a 1% chance of getting asylum there, and they didn't. And so they left Korea, and then they went to Thailand, and now we're interacting with them. And you, it, there was a story about it in the Wall Street Journal. It's kind of, a, kind of a big deal. But it's really difficult for them to function to do what we're doing right here. They can't do it. Why? Because there's a beastly government in China. We take it for granted. There is not an amicable relationship between the kings of the earth and the king of kings. The kings of the earth are called to bow the knee before the king of kings. And people don't want to do that. And when you're in a church, like Pastor Pan's church, where you're preaching that there is a king above the king, the king isn't going to like that. And then you're going to have to go to Korea, and then Thailand, and now, well, as you heard in the prayer request, there are all sorts of difficulties that, we're, that they're going through, and the moment we can figure out exactly how we can help them, we'll let you know so that we can participate. Now, I'll tell you, I don't know specifically what God has in plan in terms of this church coming out of China. I don't, I'm not sure. It's a small church. They're a, they're a small band of people who by any measurable means is no match at all for the Chinese government. But that Chinese government is no match for the God that this little church serves. And if you talk to them, they'll tell you that. Like, they get that. They understand that the nations are like a drop in the bucket. If they didn't understand that, it would be very difficult for them to persevere. One of the recurring themes in Revelation is to persevere. Even in the face of death, persevere, overcome. For God will advance his church even in the face of that which seems insurmountable. Kingdoms come and go, but there's one kingdom that will endure forever. It'll endure throughout the course of history and extend itself into eternity, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, these seven churches, they were given something that you and I aren't really given, very specific information about what God was about to do, what he was soon to do to Rome and to Jerusalem. The second bowl like Exodus 7, 17 through 21, is the sea of blood, right? So the sea turns to blood. Now, I believe these are metaphors. I don't think that the sea became typable blood, you know, o neg- o, you know, a negative blood or something like that. 
I think it speaks of famine. I think it speaks of economic deprivation. I think it may speak of maritime disaster and so forth. But you have a disaster. We, again, don't think of this. We don't think this way in terms of the problem with a sea turning to blood and you don't have water because we just have fountains, right? We just turn the water fountain on. But the, four, the third angel takes it a step further. He pours out his bowl. Not only is the sea, but the rivers become blood. Now, again, I think he's speaking metaphorically, but this tells us that there's no refuge. Yeah, the, the sea might be to blood, full, you know, turn to blood, but I'm going to turn into the rivers. No, their blood as well. In other words, there's nowhere to turn. You know, your, your MREs have run out. You don't have enough water in your house. It's, it's devastating, these bowls of wrath. The sea, the rivers. I mean, if you understand ancient cultures, the sea and the rivers, they were a source of life. You had to live by water. And what he's saying here is, no, these now become pools of death. Now, I realized when I was reading this this morning and when I was writing this, this is really an intense chapter. I mean, I, there's, there's no place in here, like, for humor. Right? You know, sometimes I like to take a deep breath and say something through... You may or may not think it's funny, but I do sometimes just for my own head to relax my own thinking. And I'm reading this, and it's like bowl after bowl after bowl, and the intensity of it is like unrelenting. And I'm guessing that has not escaped you. I'm guessing you're like, yeah, when you were reading those 21 verses, it was unrelenting. I don't think it didn't escape me. I don't think it escaped you. But you know who else it didn't escape? I don't think it escaped the angel. You know, in verse 2, we're told who these bowls fell upon, the worshipers of the beast. In verse 5 through 7, we're told why. See, the angel stops. It's, I mean, uh, John stops and he goes, okay, we're going to stop with the bowls for a minute and explain why God is doing this. God is righteous in his judgments because those who worship the beast, quote, shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. I don't know about you. I mean, you read your Bibles, and sometimes the Bible's a hard book to read. There are some very rough chapters, especially in the Old Testament. I mean, history is hard to read sometimes. You know, the atrocities of history, the atrocities written of in Scripture. You read your Bibles, you read the Old Testament, and even the people in the Bible who we normally look at as heroes, right, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, the 12. They do monstrous things. They, their behavior is hideous. I, when I read my Bible, I'm thinking, I don't, I don't think I'd want to be friends with any of these people. But the scriptures don't hesitate to share those stories with us that we might understand the darkness of the human heart. And the more we read that, the more we read about the way people behave, it's almost as if the more righteous the person is who enters into the dark area, the worse the behavior, culminating obviously with Christ himself. 
The more righteous the person, the worse the behavior. And you read things like that, and you think to yourself, if it were me, I may not be quite as patient. But God is patient. But his patience only goes so far. There comes a point when the Lord just says, enough. And that's what we're seeing in the Revelation. What we're seeing in the Revelation is that the sin of man, the sin of Rome, the sin of Jerusalem, the sin of those who crucified Christ, they didn't repent of it. They were going harder and harder and harder after it. And the Lord was saying, you're done. And I think he did that with Jerusalem. I think he did it with Rome. And I think he does it periodically throughout the course of history. Those who are committed those who are committed to denounce his son, those who are committed to kill the followers of Christ, God gives them their time. He gives them their time to repent. And if they don't, they're done. Now we'll turn to the fourth bowl here and we begin to see people's response. All right? So God is going, look at your, your evil has reached a fever pitch and I'm coming in. And in a minute I'll tell you how he comes in. But he goes, I'm coming in with wrath. And now we're going to see how do they respond to the wrath of God. So the fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, which results in men being scorched with fire. Fire is symbolic of judgment. Then we move to the fifth angel where he goes after the throne. It's like he's going after Caesar directly and he goes after him with darkness. You see... And again, I don't want to, I don't you all bad dreams or something, right? But this is some pretty bad stuff, right? You've got the fiery judgment, and then it's darkness. You ever try to manage things in the dark? You know, I mean, you're trying to fix something, and it's kind of dark. Or maybe you get up in the middle of the night to go use the bathroom, and it's dark. And what do you do? You kick your toe, or you run into something, and then you realize, oh, there's a shoe on the floor, and... You trip over it or what have you. Can you imagine trying to manage all of these plagues, all of this wrath in the dark? That's the picture that's being painted here. It's the worst possible imaginable wrath that the human mind can probably grasp. And then we see the response. We read at the conclusion of the fourth and fifth bowls that their response to the wrath of God was that they blaspheme him and they simply refuse to repent of their deeds. All the way down to the very end. I mean, they double down all the way back to the, down to the very end where it's like, in the final analysis, they are shaking their fist at God, they are blaspheming his name, and they refuse to repent. Keeping this in mind, what they're being told to repent of is the killing of innocent people. And they refuse to repent of that. They refuse to turn to the very God who is seeking at this point you know, to get their attention. And they become more and more hostile toward God. I have to say, they are so far removed. And here's, this is a challenge for, for all of us. They are so far removed from the heart of the psalmist. I'm going to ask you, 
if you, if you can respond this way. Psalm 119, 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Is that the way you respond to affliction? Do you say, you know, Lord, it was it, this really, really bad day, this bad week, this bad month, you know, this, this whole bad prognosis that's ahead of me, it's good for me. It's a pretty mature thought. I mean, I guess you all understand it in theory, right? But understanding something in the classroom is a lot different than understanding it in the lab. Granite has nothing on the hardness of the human heart. And even though, let me just tell you this, because, you know, obviously we're talking here about, you know, those who are worshiping the beast, and I I hope that's nobody in this room, although I think there's always the temptation. I mean, this is something that the world wants, right? The world wants you to not answer those five membership questions in the affirmative. The world wants your allegiance. The powers of the world want your allegiance. And I do pray that there's nobody in this room that is going, yeah, I'm going to give my full devotion to that which is not God, that which is not Christ. I'm going to give my full devotion to some political system, any political system. But I've also noticed this. And, And I say this, You know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen this happen, and I'm saying this with a very heavy heart, and as I was writing it, historical situations were popping into my head that even for a professing believer, for a person who goes, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died for me, affliction can turn a person into a theological liberal. When I say that, what I'm saying is that they don't like the definition of God that they've seen in the scriptures, so they're going to alter that definition and make God somebody that they want God to be, which is inevitably where theological liberalism goes. You're not going to accept what the Bible says in terms of who God is, what his call is in our lives. I'm going to redefine God into the kind of God that I want him to be. And friends, that comes from a spirit of rebellion, and I'm not insensitive to the pain that brings people to that place. But we should, with Job, say when his wife said, look, you've had enough of this. Quit, doing, quit tr- trying to be a man of integrity, is what she's basically saying. And what does he say? What's his response? And I think this great book that's really also... I would, I would argue that Job is all about per- the perseverance of the saints. It's all about... Will you remain faithful if God takes away every comfort you have? What does he say? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? I mean, are you ready for that? You know, appealing back to Pastor Pan and his congregation, they're not, they're, they have no, all their creature comforts have been taken away. Would you be willing to saddle up with them? Go down that road? Or is the Christian faith a product for you? Something that is going to ameliorate your life? Something that's going to give you that job or make you even feel psychologically superior than the way you felt yesterday or emotionally more secure? Do you have a conviction that if, that if, if God were to slay you on your, on your last dying breath, you would praise his name? 
Now, remember a minute ago I said I'm going to try to explain the means by which all this happens. So you remember going, what's going on with these bowls? Like, how are those coming? Because I, I would argue that it's not the way God opened up the earth, you know, and during Korah's rebellion and all those things you see in the Old Testament. The means by which God would actually bring these bowls of wrath to these people, to the Roman Empire, is referred to in the next bowl, the sixth bowl, and that is the drying up of the Euphrates. Now, what does that mean, the Euphrates, the drying up of the Euphrates? If you read your Old Testament, what you'll realize is that the drying up of a, of a sea or the drying up of the Euphrates was a way that your protection is being taken away. A lot of times people are protected by a body of water from an enemy. There were enemies of Rome. It just so happened, and I'm not, I don't want to, I think a lot of this is metaphorical, but it just so happens that the Euphrates separated the Roman Empire from the Parthian kingdoms, which were the ones who eventually sacked Rome and ended the Roman Empire. So there might be a literal application to the way this worked. He's basically going, Rome, you're done. This angel's going to dry up the Euphrates, and those hordes are going to come in, and they're going to take you down. Now, again, that's somewhat historical, but it's also accurately historical. Now we have this reference, and I don't want to get into the details here if you read it. Demonic spirits like frogs. What, 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 what's that? Spirits like frogs? Well, let me just say, and again, I'm, I'm, you had a big giant paintbrush in all of this. What we're seeing here is this demonic, this battle is going to be so vicious that it's going to be a demon-inspired battle. It's almost as if the warriors who are coming in have reached this other level of demonic conviction. That's how horrible this event is. And then we're met with this very much used word, Armageddon, right? Books and movies, it's all about Armageddon. So now we're, now we're at kind of the heat of the moment. It's demonic, it's dark, it's a battle. Euphrates has been dried up. The enemies are coming in. The bowls of wrath are coming. And, and now you've got this reference to Armageddon. What is Armageddon? Literally, the word means mount, the Mount of Megiddo. But it's an odd name. You know why? Because Megiddo was a plain. There was no mountain. So, I mean, that's a problem for all the commentators. They're going, why is he calling a plain a mountain? Well, again, we can speculate as to why that is. But here's the point. Armageddon is not some big war at the end of history. If we, if we read, the, read the Old Testament, we realize that Megiddo was a place of a great battle. It's where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanite kings. It's this idea that this is where the battle ends. And I would argue that this battle, this great day of God at Armageddon was the nail in the coffin of the Roman Empire. They're done. Well, I've mentioned many times in this series that we, um, 
we shouldn't read the Revelation and then readjust all of our theology. There's a... Um, uh, there's an exegetical method, and matter of fact, we'll get into it when you are all in here for the Westminster Confession class. It's called the analogy of faith. How many of you have ever heard of that phrase, the analogy of faith? And uh, it's the idea here, one of the ideas of the analogy of faith is, you know, you, you're, you compare scripture to scripture, but one of the real key elements is you interpret that which is unclear by that which is clear. What I have found in a lot of people with the Revelation is they do just the opposite. They take one of the most difficult books in the entire Bible to understand, and then they reinterpret the previous 65 books. And what I'm telling you is that this battle of Armageddon, this idea that the the Roman Empire is going to be crushed, is something that we've already read in Daniel where the stone made without hands, falls upon the image and dashes that image which represented the four kingdoms, the last one being what? What was the last kingdom in those, of that image? The Roman Empire. That's what's going on here. The, the promise in Daniel, the promise we've already read about, the promise that Jesus taught about in all three synoptic gospels, and this idea that the Rome, Rome, Jerusalem and Rome is coming to an end, is something that we see in this passage. I don't think it's that difficult. And then, you know, Rome itself becomes divided into three different areas. So you, you really have Rome falling apart, and you got these, some people say, you know, the hailstones that weigh a, a talent, which is about 100 pounds. You know, Josephus says those might have been catapults or something. I don't know for sure. All I can tell you, though, is that we're talking about the devastation of the enemies of the people of God. Well, okay, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to stop the sermon, but I'm going to stop with that. Don't get all excited. I mean, all of this, I think, at some level, can be fascinating history. I mean, I also think it should be encouraging and uplifting. I think it can be stirring to our hearts to know of God's divine protection of that which is good and right and true, knowing that if you're fighting the battle for the kingdom of God, you're fighting for something that will endure throughout the course of history, and God will ensure that. He will bless those who bless his people. He will curse those who curse his people. It's this great promise that God is going, evil will not win out. But it also should be a warning and I think these, if, we, you know, if, if you put all of this together with what we've studied so far, it should be a warning that we do not join sides with those who momentarily appear to be dominating. Right? It looks like Rome is winning. It looks like there's a movement going on, and it's, I'm guessing it's getting harder and harder for you as a Christian to have a conversation that reveals that you're a Christian in the environment that's taking place, and so you're going to be tempted to not say anything and even tempted to change your mind. And that's the warning that Jesus has been giving these churches over and over and over again. Persevere. Be faithful. Overcome. Do not allow the tide of the day to kind of win your heart. 
Because God has a way of shaking things up. Now, whether the earthquake in chapter 18 is literal or not, I'm not going to argue. But Hebrews teaches that God shakes things up. Have you ever felt like God's been shaking your life up? And we're told that he shakes things up, and we're told why he shakes things up. Verse 27, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You know, you you get the picture here? I don't know, you just, this idea that he's just going to take it and shake it, and the things in our lives that have become so precious to us that could be gone in a heartbeat, he's going, you need to be reminded of the tenuous nature of the things you're putting your trust in. Where's your foundation? I was talking to a friend recently who told me that God shook up the church through COVID, that we might see what we're really made of. I, I, thought, I thought there was some validity to that. I mean, the fact that some churches have closed entirely. I mean, what, what was going on that you would just, I mean, and never reopen. You're, we're done. What was going on that that would actually happen? Where, where were you placing your faith that God would come in and shake it up, and really what it amounts to be, at least historically speaking, compared to the bowls of wrath, a pretty mild thing. And you shake it up, and we're like, oh, I can't handle it. He will periodically visit affliction in our lives that we might be reminded to hold on to him. Hold on to his kingdom. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, wonder, I'm guessing you experience that because I do. Sometimes I just feel like, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm riding the wave a little bit. I'm like, things seem to be going well at church and everybody likes Pastor Paul and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, the other things happen. You know, you get a mean phone call and then you get this and that. And you're like, you know, then you get a stress dream and you're preaching and there's nobody there. And then the cops show up and you're, you know... So you get all this stuff going on, and it's God's way of kind of just reminding me that, look, at you can't allow yourself, hey, enjoy the encouragement. We should encourage each other. We should be that. But God, it's God's way of kind of going, look, at if I take away everything, if I take away every last single thing, will you still be faithful? So you got to kind of continually allow your mind to be brought there, and if it's not brought there, God somehow orchestrates things to bring you there. I want to finish with that benediction. This is the third benediction in the Revelation. If you have some of your Bibles, you'll see this portion is in the red letters. It means, you know, Jesus. Behold, verse 15, I want to finish with this thought. I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, I'm going to tell you, against popular opinion, I don't think this is referring to the second coming. Jesus had earlier warned the church at Sardis that if they did not repent, he would come to them like a thief. So this idea of Jesus coming as a thief doesn't always refer to the end of history. The church of Sardis, he was saying, you need to repent or I'm going to come like a thief to them 2,000 years ago. And not only that, he had made a promise to the church of Philadelphia 
that due to their obedience, now get this, you know, this is just a little bit of an argument for the fact that these are things that happened back then. That due to their obedience, he would keep them, quote, from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now, some people would say, well, that's the end of history. But he's telling the church of Philadelphia, because of your obedience, I'm going to keep you from the trial that's about to come upon the whole world. Now, it's really difficult to read that in such a way as to go, well, this, is, this trial that's going to come upon the whole world is not going to happen for 2,000 years because if that's the case, he's keeping all the seven churches from that trial. It, that had to mean something to them. They, that something huge that was going to affect the whole world, i.e. the Roman Empire, was about to happen, and Jesus is saying, I will keep you from that trial that's about to come upon the whole world. All that to say, I don't think he's talking about the second coming here. I think he's talking about what we've been talking about, and that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Roman Empire and the call to the church within the boundaries of this hornet's nest to remain faithful. And how does he say it? You know, there's an old saying that goes all the way back to the 16th century. I'll say it in Latin because I like the way it sounds. Vestis virum facet. Anybody know what that means? Oh, and if you have the notes, don't cheat. <laughs> Clothes maketh the man. Now, I don't know. You know, that kind of a statement might be socially relevant. There's like... I got off on a tangent and started kind of going, well, what did that actually mean? Does it mean the way you're viewed? You know, because, you know, the way you dress kind of makes a statement. Or is it the way you feel when you dress nice? Right? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? You put on some stuff and you're like, I can make big decisions in this coat. <laughs> I don't know what that means. and I don't know if it's socially relevant or dubious. But I think spiritually it means a great deal. Jesus was coming quickly, and they needed to be watchful. But more importantly, they needed to keep their garments. So odd little phrase, isn't it? Keep your garments. Well, the shame of nakedness is a very common theme in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go into detail, you know, but God talks about things like lifting the skirt and all the things that kind of make you cringe, you know, talking about a stress dream, right? But I think many of us know, without even going into depth, this idea of being clothed, as Eddie said in his prayer, clothed in Christ, goes all the way back to the beginning. Remember Adam and Eve? They ate. And they knew they were naked. And what do they do? What do they try to do? Yeah, they try to cover their own shame with what? Fig leaves. Like it's, there it is right there, Arminians. It's an Arminian theology. Okay, but, yeah, you guys all need to come to the Westminster. <laughs> it's this idea that I can somehow cover my own shame. And they fail. And what does God do? He covers them with animal tunics, right? So he covers them with animal skins. Where did that come from? He had to kill an animal. I mean, I, I guess it must have been horrifying. You go from 
paradise, to the fall, to the shedding of blood. And we all know that it's not the blood of bulls and goats that delivers us from sin. So the shedding of the blood pointed to Christ. And they were clothed in Christ. We, talk, we opened the service today with the reading from Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest. Well, it's such a beautiful picture there. I hope that you appreciated just reading it, this idea that you've got Joshua there in filthy garments, right? He's covered with sin. It's, and you don't, it, it doesn't take a lot to recognize that because when the clean garments are put on, we're told that the, it, it, his, it's his iniquity that is taken away. But he's standing there in the presence of the angel of the Lord and he, and he takes his old clothes off and he puts his new clothes on. Actually, he doesn't do that. He just stands there and it's done for him. I mean, it, it is all by the grace of God. His, his, his dirty garments are taken off and clean garments are put on. And those garments point to Christ. Friends, have you put on Christ? Are you wearing Christ as a garment? By grace through faith, have you called upon his name and does his righteousness now belong to you? When God looks at you, does he see, as it were, the righteousness of Christ? I can't think of anything more critical in terms of the Christian message than to recognize that by grace through faith, when we call upon the name of the Lord, immediately Immediately, when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Rich robes, they're called. You know, Paul, a number of times, says, put on Christ. Put on Christ. It's an interesting way to say it. I don't know if I've ever heard that in an evangelistic crusade, you know, to say put on Christ. But John Calvin, I think, had a very, I think, poignant point as in terms of his comment on that. Calvin said, Now to put on Christ means here to be on every side fortified by the power of his spirit and be thereby, thereby prepared to discharge all the duties of holiness for thus is the image of God renewed in us which is the only true ornament of the soul. Friends, we're in a battle. You're in a battle. A battle that makes normal armor, as with David, worthless. God is ever preparing us, often through affliction, for the long game. It's the long game. Israel fell astonishingly because they did not consider their latter end. They didn't look down the road. We need to recognize that God is preparing us for the long game. We have, an, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have this earthly Dwelling that is eventually, that's our bodies, our, you know, that is eventually destroyed. It's a building that is not eternal. But there is a building from God, a house not made with hands, Paul talks about. And then it's interesting because he kind of changes the metaphor because he goes from there is this building not made with hands, and then he starts talking about it as a garment. And he says this in this passage, and I just want to challenge you with this. That the trials of this life, the fact that you recognize that that earthly dwelling, that is your body, 
is getting weaker and weaker and will eventually be destroyed. In light of that, he says, do not be unclothed, but we need to be further clothed. In your affliction, don't turn your back upon the Lord, but turn to the Lord. That's why the affliction is there. Don't waste the affliction. There's something of value to the affliction that you turn. You know, we, we talk about Jesus calming the sea a lot, right? That's kind of a big thing in the Gospels. But when you start really studying the whole thing, the storm, he doesn't just calm the storm. You know what else he does? He creates the storm. He, it's all part of his way of turning our face toward him. You know, a fireman in a burning building, and I've, I've heard this, they're in a burning building and it gets crazy. They're, they feel constricted and they're tempted to take all the protective gear off. Obviously, that's fatal. When you're, when you're finding yourself in the midst of that turmoil, you don't pull the gear off. You cinch it in more tightly. You, you draw near to God that he may draw near to you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine these bowls of wrath and the recognition that you will only allow evil to go so far, we do pray that we would never allow ourselves to be part of that evil, of that judged evil, those who have committed themselves, Father, to that which is not God. We do pray that you would open our minds and hearts to recognize that even in our affliction, even in the difficulties, that we would ever turn toward you, that we would ever recognize that these garments are to be kept, that we are to persevere in the faith. And we thank you, Father, that you've opened our eyes to the truth of these glorious things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.